Greetings all. I hope you are all doing well. This is Pastor Andrew recording a short intro for today's worship. Two announcements that didn't come out perfect in the recording, so I'm going to put them in here. Number one, if you are, are checking in with our brothers and sisters in different um, facilities, some of those are opening up, so see if you are able to visit, if it's a safe idea for you to do so. Uh, I, I know they would enjoy those visits. If you've been sending letters or want to send a letter to our sister Peggy, just uh, remember to send it to Margaret, um, not Peggy, because we're not sure that her last name, her uh, nickname that we all know her by is familiar to those at the uh, at altar care. The other one is that we are still picking up tithes from the mailbox if you are mailing them in regularly. Um, as well as for those who are coming to church, we have the offering box in the back, and we will, of course, be collecting those immediately after worship every Sunday. I hope you all are doing well and being safe. And as always, you can reach out to me at the church's uh, phone or through email or through my cell phone. Lots of ways to get a hold of us. Well, blessings on all of you this week and have a wonderful rest of your day. See you soon. Well, then I ask you to join in preparing your hearts as we get ready to encounter God today together.
if you'll pray with me. Holy Creator, we come together to read your ancient words, to connect with them, to reach out and ask, what does this mean? We pray that you're with us as we do so, that our hearts are open to you, that our spirits are ready to receive the message that you give to us. We know it's not always easy. We pray. We pray that we're able to do so. We lift up to you, Lord, our sisters and our brothers in need of comfort and healing. For Sandra and Peggy. For our sister Helen as she readies for surgery. For Eric. For Bonnie. For Jim. We pray that you are with them in these coming days, that your hands of healing are on them. We pray for Isaiah and all those who are coming into new life situations that they are excited and that things work out for them. We thank you for these changes, for these new adventures on the horizon. We thank you for young lives as they mature, as they become the people that you call them to be. And we thank you for Asher's birthday. It's a big one. We pray for our brothers and sisters who are out there in this world, those who are at risk, those who are working for the others. We pray all these things in the name of the Son. Amen. Now, if you'll all enjoy some special music by our sister Janice today, I can hopefully those of you online can listen to her a little better this week. Uh, I was making an observation um, that we have, like, it's interesting that we have been designed with two eyes and two ears and one mouth, and there might be something to that. The song is called Word of God Speak. I'm finding myself at a loss for words. And the funny thing is, it's okay. The last thing I need is to be heard, but to hear what you would say. Word of God speak, 
Would you pour down like rain, washing my eyes to see your majesty, to be still and know that you're in this place. Please let me stay and rest in your holiness. Word of God speak. Finding myself in the midst of you, beyond the music, beyond the noise, and all that I need is to be with you, and in the quiet, hear your voice, word of God speak, would you pour down like rain, washing my eyes to see your majesty to be still and know that you're in this place please let me stay and rest in your holiness word of god speak i'm finding myself at a loss for words and the funny thing is, it's okay. Thank you, Janice. I can preach and cameraman myself. Because that makes me a double threat. If I start dancing, I'd be a triple threat. Actually, if I do dance, it'll be a threat to all of us. Especially my wife, as she has to cover her eyes in shame. From the book of Acts, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife, Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the feet of the apostles. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have, you need that, that you have kept some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have lied not to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. In a great fear of all who heard what had happened, then see, um, happened. Then the young men came forward wrapped up his body and carried it out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? The feet of the men who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. 
Then the young men came in, finding her, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard of these events. This is a bit of a different story than usual. We have a death that appears to be connected to God, and this is the only time that something like this happens in all of the New Testament, if you're not really counting Revelation. If we jump back into the Old Testament, especially, say, the Exodus and the Promised Land era, maybe even go as far as King David, yeah, I mean, it was rare. God didn't just smite people left and right, but comparably to the New Testament, it's pretty common. This is something that doesn't happen in this half of the Bible. 27 books in the New Testament, and it happens right here, this time only. And why? What is Ananias's sin? appears to be lying. What's Sapphira's sin? Supporting her spouse? Her punishment? Death. Seems a little harsh. This story has caused friction in Christianity since, well, pretty much as soon as the ink dried on the original copy that Luke wrote. It's hard to square with our Christ of mercy and forgiveness. It's hard to square that with this swift, indomitable punishment. Dear Dr. Luke, what? Okay. So I'm approaching this story. I knew I needed to preach on it. Not that anyone told me to. I just knew I had to. So I do a little bit of exploratory exegesis. Exegesis is the fancy word pastors like to use to mean that we're going to try to interpret the text. There's a lot of possibilities, and the Bible can teach us many different lessons out of a single story. Lessons that are catered to our individual needs. So understand as I'm going through this that what I'm hearing may not be the necessarily the same thing that you're hearing from the Spirit today as I read that reading to you. And it may not be the same thing that you hear the next time you encounter Ananias and Sapphira. The other thing I have to mention is I am going to be saying this strange word called pericope, which if I'm reading quickly, I may accidentally say pericope because that's how it's spelled. But it is pericope, which simply means a cutting out it's a way to talk about a section within the sacred scriptures without having to say something along the lines of, let me tell you about this scripture, which appears after this scripture, after, before this scripture, within this group of scriptures and within this whole book of scriptures. It gets complex, so I'm going to be using the word pericope some. So, day one, biblical interpretation stuff. The introduction to the three worlds of scripture. World number one, the world inside the text. I might be doing in front, inside, and behind. So world number one, we start inside the text. Where does it fit into the Bible? 
What kind of text is it? What words are used? What is the structure? What does it appear after? What does it appear before? Okay. Step one, it takes place in Acts. Okay, we know we're in a book of history now. Not only that, it's a book of history with speeches and sermons spread throughout it. We know that it's happening at the front end of Acts, chapter 5. So we're at the first half of Acts still, first third even. So that tells us that we are in Jerusalem. We are at the very beginning of the church. We are before Paul. We are before Gentiles have entered the church. Okay. We know that there is this time where the leader, people who are following the disciples have created a perfect reflection of Jesus' teachings, the perfect kingdom of God here on earth in their small community. However, while they are doing this, we know they're having these increasingly bitter encounters with the temple authorities. And eventually this will become so dangerous that they are all forced to run away from Jerusalem and the first church dissolves. Let's look just in front. Just in front, we are told that people are selling the land they own. This is verses 34 through 37 of chapter 4. We see... Sorry, I lost my place there. We aren't told that it's necessarily like a thing you join. Like, I've joined the church, now I'm going to sell all my land, and here's all the money. We aren't told that's how it happens. It could. We aren't told that. It could also simply be that as the as the community needs the money, those with land are selling bits and pieces off to continue supporting it. This is in an era where they were pretty sure Jesus was coming back really soon. They didn't need to make long-term planning. The text afterwards, oh, and one last thing, a verse right before it includes this guy named Barnabas, who eventually will become one of Paul's traveling companions. And it specifically says that Paul Barnabas sold the land and gave all the money to the apostles. So we have this perfect representation of what's supposed to happen immediately before Ananias does it the wrong way. Immediately afterwards, the people are growing afraid of being openly supportive of this new community of the apostles. They separate themselves when they're in public. But the community still grows. It still gets larger. And Peter is being treated more and more like Jesus was. So much so that people would bring their family members and lay them on mats and cots on the areas where Peter would walk by with the hope that Peter's shadow might cross them. There's also the structure. Two sections, they mirror each other almost identically. First, we have someone going to Peter. They lie to Peter. Peter chastises them. The person dies. And then, in reversing order here, the body is taken away, and great fear strikes at the hearts of first those who hear of it, and then later all of the community. We are told twice that great fear seized people. Actually, the word used here is fear and the word for awe. 
Not like, oh, that's a really cute baby, because let's face it, Holly is a very cute baby. She is. But all as in, I am standing on the mountainside, seeing a thunderstorm coming across the valley, rushing at me. It's the awe of terror. It's the awe of magnificence in front of you. He says it twice. This is called amplification. It's a common literary technique. You hear it even in today's speeches and books. It's a repeated idea or theme that's repeated again and again and again and again so that we hear it better. It's amplified. A good trick when reading the Bible, if you really want to know what somebody is trying to get to you, what that main point is, is read the book in its fullest and count how many times a specific idea is repeated. That's what they want you to pay attention to. Luke wants us to pay attention in this story here that there was great fear and awe. Lastly, there's the bits that are missing. We're never actually told what Ananias's, Ananias's actual sins are. He appears to claim that he was going to give the full amount and that what Peter seems to be chastising him for, but we're never actually told that's what he was doing. It's not there. It simply is that, yeah, he said this is the full amount and he lied. You know, he was trying to have his cake and eat it too. Get the approval of the community and the money. And maybe that may, he made a vow. Maybe he made a vow. I am going to sell this land. So help me God. And I will give it all to you. And then he doesn't uphold that vow to God. It may be it's because he approaches the apostles and God with an ulterior motive. He does it for pride. He does it for greed. We don't know. We only know that he was punished severely for doing so. It's a lot of little bits and pieces of information and you kind of try to tug at the strings and pull them together that get something useful out of all of it. But what we can draw is first that it's unique, as I've already said more than once. In the entire Testament, nothing appears like it. But because it's so unique, because it's never repeated anywhere else, anything like this, we know that it was important enough that Luke still had to bring it in to tell us the story, to pass it down through the ages. The Spirit wanted this story included. We are also, when you look at the vast bit of text here, we notice something. Perfection, the kingdom of heaven built, lived fully by the believers, and humanity's flaws start to creep in. The church starts to fracture. Discontent and strife enter. We can see that as the story moves for you all, it's from this side to that side. As the story moves forward into history, we start to see those fractures, fractures that Paul, John, and Peter will spend the rest of their lives traveling and writing letters to try and correct. 
okay, I have a little bit of idea of what you're trying to get at right now, Luke. Let's move on to the second world. Let's go to the world behind the text. Because it's in here that we find an echo of a far older story. The world behind the text is those who would have written it and read it the first time. Those who were there. Those who were the closest to the time. What was their culture like? What would they have thought about? What would they have read and heard that went into this? What are the parts of the scriptures that we don't understand because we live 2,000 years after them? Okay. Let's start with the basics again. It's Luke, we're pretty sure, who wrote Acts. He wrote Luke in Acts. He actually never signed his name. That happens with most of our Bible. No one actually signs their names next to it. It's not like we have Luke's original copy hanging around somewhere with the bottom of it. He's like me whenever I print copies of my sermons where I put my name across the bottom. He never did that. But those who lived about 100, 150 years after him started talking about his works and attributing his name to it. So we're pretty sure Luke wrote Acts in the Gospel of Luke. Well, we know he lived in Antioch. It's a town north of Jerusalem. Um, it became the hub of Christianity. It's actually where we get the word Christianity. It first appears there in Antioch. He was a friend and a traveling companion of Paul, a physician, most likely a Greek Gentile, though he could have been a Hellenized Jew. That's a Jew who's kind of accepted Greek culture and philosophy. He eventually will actually become a character in his own writing. And about uh, Acts chapter 16, verse 10, he makes this funny little switch where he was always talking about they did this and they did that. And all of a sudden, it's we. Okay. Lastly, it appears that Luke wrote his book well after everything happened as much as 20 to 30 years after. So he has history to look back on. He got to look back and know where all the little threads were eventually leading. You know how they say hindsight is 2020. He's writing it with that hindsight of 2020. He knows where the story's going already. He can put in little spoilers here and there to give you an idea of what's going to happen. If he was someone who actually was a Greek Gentile, someone unschooled in scriptures at the beginning, he's had 20 to 30 years to study them and to get to know them really well. And when you read through the Gospel of Luke, which he even writes at the beginning of Acts, that this is the second book, he wrote the Gospel first. He's got a very good command over the ancient scriptures. He understood that this story was reflecting something in far more ancient history. Something that the Jews who read his book at the beginning and those Gentiles who had gotten to know the scriptures, they would have instantly recognized. It happened in the book of Jesus's namesake. Just in case you didn't know, Jesus is the Greek version of the word Yeshua, which is Aramaic, which is the Hebrew word Joshua. Jesus is Joshua. And in the book of Joshua, 
the son of Nun, that's his dad, Nun, not that he didn't have any father, we find this history is already happened once. This thing that repeats itself. Now, Joshua was a militia captain back in the battle of the, we call it the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds. And he eventually rises up to become Moses' right hand and eventual successor. He's the one, as you all know, who crosses the Jordan River with the Hebrews and leads them into battle against Jericho and eventually conquers most of the promised land. This is the first kingdom of God. And it's a kingdom of God because God is actually king right up until David. Actually, technically Saul. Saul was the first non-God king. This was a time where God led the people into their promised land, the perfect society. And we see he gives direct commands. Actually, the day that they got up to march around the city for that last time, the Battle of Jericho, when the walls fall, Joshua issues a bunch of commands, which includes this warning. This is chapter 6, 18, 19. But keep away from those devoted things so that you will not bring about your destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All of the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go to the treasury. I don't know about you, but if God is telling you not to touch something, my guess is you wouldn't touch it. I mean, this isn't in an era where you're kind of hoping that, you know, like there's that random guy on the street who claims to know what God's telling you to do. It's not like that. You actually know this person has been talking directly to God. You just had Moses who would come down from the mountain because he had just met with God, his face would be glowing with the radiance of God, frightening to the point where they made him cover his face so it would scare them. I would especially guess that you would obey God's commands if you just saw the walls of a city fall down on their own accord. God is a little powerful. And it's no more, it's very strongly demonstrated in this section of the Bible. But Akin did just that. He disobeyed. He stole some gold and silver and some fine cloth and some other stuff and brought sin into the nation of Israel. And so when Joshua sent the next group of soldiers out to attack the city of Ai, that's A-I, 36 men died in a failed attack. God directed Joshua to find where the sin was in the, in the great community of the Hebrews, direct him around until he came to Achan, and then the sin was cleansed with blood. God, sorry, the rest of Joshua's campaign actually went pretty well, but it was already too late. Greed grudges, distrust. It's been allowed to sneak in. 
And when Joshua dies, the kingdom of God starts going through this roller coaster where they disobey God for their own reasons. In comes the invaders. They cry out to God. God raises the judge. The judge defeats them and brings them back to a new age of being one with their king. And then they start to disobey again. Rinse and repeat. And each time a new judge rises, that judge is a little worse than the last one. And the book of Judges ends with a civil war in the near genocide of the tribe of Benjamin. An earthly kingdom of God falls because of human weakness and an inability to listen to and obey the divine one. A kingdom that is soon infected. Now, as I said, this is only one possibility of things to draw out from within the Bible, the things in the back. What, what was going on in the heads of those who first read it? If you join us for Bible study on Tuesday, we're doing this, and I'm going to do a few more of these, what's behind this text, because there's a lot going on back there. Not enough to do a 20-minute sermon on. I mean, way too much to do a 20-minute sermon on. It's possible that the readers of Acts would draw this connection between Achan and his sin and Ananias and Ananias and his sin. How they were allowed corruption, something corruption into something pure. Moses and Jesus, the great leaders who came and taught the people how to worship, how to follow, how to listen to God. And then they ascend and disappear. So their replacements come on. Men of good character, but not as good. We have Peter and Joshua. They try their best, and they succeed overall. But almost as soon as they start succeeding, corruption comes in. Achan, Ananias. And by that time, the corruption has already become so deeply rooted into their groups, into their organization, that it will never fully be weeded out. A church that is experiencing great discomfort as it grows because there are many voices. And while you can do that when you have many voices that aren't of one mind, it's even harder when there's many voices and they're not of one heart. The sin, the separation are all now part of the community. And this leads me to my last world, the world in front of the text, the world that exists between my eyes and the words I read. Because whenever we read any book, not, the Bi not just the Bible, but especially the Bible, we bring into it our beliefs, our experiences, our relationships, cultures, and all the ideas and stories we have come into contact with. Not to mention those things that are most noble about ourselves and those things that are the least noble. What do you bring to this story? What do you bring as you try to read the text? We can pray that the Holy Spirit works with us. We can pray that it talks to us. But the thing is, is I speak English only. And I'm not going to be able to listen and understand what the Spirit is telling me unless it speaks in the language I understand. So I have to do my best. This world, this world in front of the text, 
is the most troublesome one to deal with. It's a blessing and a burden. It gets in our way, but it also allows us to better understand how these texts are meant for our reality, for our lives, for the world outside these walls. So I need to recognize why this story makes my skin crawl. Because, oh boy, does it. I'm really uncomfortable with it. I know a lot of it has to do with my knowledge of what will happen. Peter will become what's known as the first pope. He'll never actually take the title, but those who come after him will claim that. Popes will eventually use their position to persecute, maim, and murder those for their real and perceived sins. Sins against God sometimes, but just as often sins against those who sit on Peter's throne. Corruption of the church. It's not the corruption at this point of those coming and bringing their money to the church. It's the corruption that's sitting there waiting for the money to be brought to it. Corruption that will lead to wars and genocides and of bigotry and ones that will eventually force my ancestors to keep moving so they don't end up in the martyr's mirror. It isn't helped that it feels like Peter is taking authority for himself. And this is just all the more amplified by how people treat him in the next couple verses as he's treated like Jesus is. And he's not Jesus. I feel bad for Sapphira. I feel really bad for Sapphira. And probably it's because this text just isn't that fleshed out. Her sin is for supporting her husband. It was wrong for her to lie, but at the same time, how do we know that she didn't do the thing that was probably best for her. She was a wife in a time where women were property. How do we know Anias didn't beat her? How do we know she wasn't avoiding violence? I guess I'm just most uncomfortable because it's hard to square Jesus and God in the New Testament. This God of mercy and love, this one that tells us to forgive seven times 70, a loving creator. A loving creator that has this moment of violence in the middle of the story. Why do we need to fear like that? I went to somebody I thought could actually talk to about this at least as far as my books go. Inevitably, I end up with C.S. Lewis, the great apologist of Christianity. Because I went to Aslan. If you've ever read the Narnia books, Aslan is the lion. He represents Jesus in this other world. He stands in for Jesus in his books. He's the creator and the savior of the lands and of the people. He is good. But he's also a lion. A lion, you can't forget, has big teeth, big claws, and a whole lot of muscle behind them. 
maybe I'm being reminded when I read this text that God isn't tame. God isn't something that I can say, oh, what a cute little thing that's just full of love and mercy and forgiveness like, oh, my dog. God's so much more. God's more than that. God's more powerful. God can't be tamed. God is the kind of being who can strike you dead at any moment. This story just rubs me in all the wrong ways, as I said. It's a monkey wrench in my faith. It causes me a great deal of distress, and that's why I'm preaching on it. Because belief isn't always easy. Sometimes we are pushed and strained by the world, and sometimes it's by the Bible and by our faith. Lewis reminds me that Jesus isn't a tamed character. This is Jesus who eats with prostitutes, kills figs, trees, and likes to throw tables around outside of church. Luke reminds me that the Bible isn't tame either. It's complex. It's full of good people doing bad things. Pagans who act even better than prophets. It's full of talking donkeys and plagues and earthquakes and schemers and jerks in power who have no place there and even apostles who make mistakes. I don't decide what's in the Bible. I don't get to decide what's going to trip me up. I get to struggle with it. We all get to struggle with it. I guess I'm blessed still. It doesn't always feel that way, but it's a blessing to fight with myself, to dissect my feelings, to dissect my world, and go, and what I'm bringing to this, my best self, my purest self, my self that is ready to listen to God even when it's uncomfortable. I get to keep working at being me. For now, for now, I'll keep encountering this pericope. I'll keep encountering all the parts of scripture that make me question, that make me struggle with God. And hopefully, when I come out of each of those struggles, which I know inevitably I'm going to go right back into the next time I read that section. I'm going to get right back into that struggle. But hopefully when I come out on the other side, I'm pushed to be a better person, to recognize who I am in my world, and to recognize that what plans I have, God's got its own set of plans that God's going to make. God isn't tame. God is powerful. God is beyond. God is more than I can grasp. It seems like such a small thing. And this is actually a middle-sized one. I'll keep struggling with it. I'll keep wondering. And I'm going to keep being uncomfortable. God keeps you on your toes, and I think that's typically a good thing, because once you get comfortable, you're 
no longer working for the kingdom because we're not there yet. So in the meantime, I'm going to keep encountering this scripture and I'm going to keep saying, dear Dr. Luke, why? Thank you. I want to apologize a bit because I know this wasn't maybe perhaps the most comfortable thing to hear today. It wasn't comfortable to write. But at the same time, I hope you leave here a little uncomfortable because that's not what church is for. Church isn't here to make you feel good. God isn't here to make you feel good. God is here so that you can find redemption, salvation, growth, and to keep working for the kingdom. And so as you leave today, may you look out your windows as you drive home and be a little uncomfortable. Thank you, and all men. Mm -hmm.